You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I saw an article this week uh, buzzing around the internet. I didn't read it at first, and then Christian Kreider sent me a link to it. I was like, well, I've got to read it now. Uh, it was an article entitled, Why I'm Coming Out as a Christian. You may have seen this article. It's written by a woman named Anna Marie Cox, who is an author and a blogger who self-admittedly says that she has lots of opinions and very often uh, unpopular opinions. She describes uh, her, the tension that she feels sort of professionally, the, the difficult spot that she's in, because she is a, a sort of left-leaning political pundit in a very left political media world. All good so far, right? Except she's also a Christian. So she's in this world that tends to associate Christianity with the religious right, but that's not where she would put herself, and so she feels constantly out of place with respect to her faith and her work. And she says in the article, and she stresses this fact, that she doesn't just believe in God. She's a Christian. She is, quote, all in with Jesus. And she articulates her faith in very winsome ways uh, throughout the article. Now, as a Christian uh, who works in this political and media world, she feels this tension concerning how explicit or open she can be with her faith. Well, in this article, as you see, she, she finally, once for all, comes out publicly with her faith. But there's a twist. It turns out, even though there is this professional awkwardness, that's not the deep fear that she has. She's not afraid of being judged by those who don't share her faith, but rather, she's afraid of being judged by those who do share her faith. Here's a little excerpt uh, from the article. She says, My hesitancy to flaunt my faith has nothing to do with fear of judgment by non-believers. No, I'm nervous to come out as a Christian because I worry I'm not good enough of one. I'm not scared that non-believers will make me feel an outcast. I'm scared that Christians will. Now, I don't know Mrs. Cox. I've never read anything that she's written other than this article. Uh, But I do know that she's touched on something very real. There's a reason this article got so much buzz in the last 10 days. Because we have all felt what she feels. At some point, we've all felt that we're just not good enough Christians. At some point, uh, we've had a sense of being judged We feel like we're being compared and not measuring up. And the reason that we all feel that is because of the way that comparison and judgmentalism sneaks its way into our hearts and into our churches. If you've ever felt ashamed of your faith, if you've ever doubted your salvation because of the way that Christians are judging you, then you know exactly what Ms. Cox is nervous about. If you've never felt that way, it means you've probably just been on the other side of the equation, doing the judging that's causing people to doubt and to fear. Now, listen, there are things that uh, we can and should judge as being right and wrong. There are things that are very central to just the, the content and the commands of the gospel. As Christians, we make all kinds of good, godly judgments about what's right and wrong. But there are all kinds of other things that aren't central to the content or the commands of the gospel. Secondary doctrines, issues of conscience, you might call them just disputable 
matters, things that we could debate about. You can't debate. We're not going to debate about whether or not Jesus is God. That's not up for debate. But we can debate about lots of other things, about like what we should wear to church, although not much of a debate going on here about that. Uh, In my experience, it is in this arena. It's in the broader realm of stuff, the disputable matters, the secondary doctrines. It's in that arena where I think most of the conflict and the judgmentalism in Christianity occurs. There are obviously issues related to core things, but most of what we experience with each other is in those disputable matters. And I think from reading Cox's article, my perception is that that's what she fears too. She talks about fearing where the bar will be set by other Christians for her to know whether or not she is, in fact, a good Christian or not. Where is the bar? Like when you describe someone as a strong Christian as opposed to just, I don't know, a Christian, what do you mean by that? What are the qualifiers? What is the bar in which someone makes it to strong Christian? Or real Christian or serious Christian. And beyond that, there's a broader question, and that is how can we have different thoughts about all of these things which are peripheral but yet still very important to us? How can we differ in opinions about those things and get along and have a healthy, functioning, gospel centered community? Man, that I can't think of a more practically important question for our church. It's a question that we need to answer, and it's a question that Paul's addressing here in Romans 14. When I think about community and how Christians interact with one another, it is such a big deal. We've made it like one of the core aspects of our DNA as a church, and I think by God's grace, it's a real strength for our church because we all desperately need community. Most of us are even conscious of the fact that we want community, and community is a really good thing. But because of sin, community also becomes the playground for things like manipulation and comparison and intimidation and pride and fear, judgmentalism. You think about the playground when you were a kid. What's going on on the kid's playground? There's all these spoken and unspoken mostly rules about who's cool and who's not cool, who's in and who's out. And the same thing happens in churches all the time. Who's a good Christian and who's not? And so we have got to understand what God has to say to us in Romans 14. And we're going to do it in two parts because it's so important. Uh, This week, I I just sort of want to give us a conceptual framework, kind of lay down a foundation for how to think about this. And then next week, we'll deal with the more practical issues of how to actually pursue one another in love. All right. Uh, here's the, the main thing I want to get across. This is Paul's number one rule for the playground. This is the governing rule of Christian community, and it's this. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you. Welcome, accept one another as God has welcomed and accepted you. It's so simple. But simple rarely means easy. All right, so here's the framework I want to give us to help us understand why this isn't so easy. Uh, In Romans 14, you've got two groups of people, the weak and the strong, and then you've got two problems related to those two groups of people, and then Paul's going to give us one solution uh, to both of those problems. All right, so let's talk about these two groups of people. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, 
welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So let me stop there. Uh, here we've got the two groups of people. The only one that's explicitly named is those who are weak in faith, uh, but implicitly you also must then have those who are strong in faith, and that's how we'll refer to them. And the issues that are going on in relation to the weakness and strength in faith are not issues that are sin issues. They're not even really issues that are sort of debatable as to whether or not they're sin. They're issues that are clearly permitted, clearly allowed for any Christian to do or not do, but not required for any Christian to do or not do. It's those disputable issues, those secondary things. And in that context, you have some who, Paul says, are weak in faith. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at the details of it. The issue here is that one group of people eats only vegetables. Uh, You'll find out that they esteem some days over others, and then later in the text you'll find out that they they don't drink wine. They abstain from drinking alcohol. Uh, These are likely Jewish Christians who are in the church in Rome. And we've talked about this before. The church in Rome is made up probably predominantly of Gentile Christians, but it's definitely a mix of people who have come from these very distinct religious backgrounds, Jewish faith and pagan faith. And so these Jewish Christians believe in Jesus. They believe the core doctrines of the gospel. That's not the issue. What they lack is an understanding of what that faith allows them to do. They lack a broad assurance of the freedom they have because of the gospel, but they certainly, they're all in with Jesus. The issue is, is that they grew up in this heritage, in this religious culture that valued the Mosaic law. So God gave, beyond the Ten Commandments, God gave all kinds of laws to his people. Uh, Among them are like dietary laws. And so imagine if you grew up in a house where uh, what you ate and how you ate it was tied to reverence for God. Imagine how important that would be to you when you moved out and you got around other people who didn't think of it the same way. It would seem irreverent to you. Well, that's how they feel. Uh, They grew up observing certain days and and festivals, and all of that was very tied to them for like what it meant to like worship God. Well, imagine if you grew up that way, and then you, let's say you grew up in a church that thought Sunday was the only day. That was the proper day for worship. And then you grew up and you moved to some progressive city and all the church services were on Saturday night. I mean, it would feel like wrong in some way. And that's how it is to them. They have these days that they esteem as better than others. And so they just feel this sense of loyalty to the Mosaic Law. It's just how they grew up. Anybody can understand that. Now, it's important to say that this is not the same group of people that Paul's been speaking out against in much of Romans. Like in Romans 10, he talks about a group of Jews who have failed to understand that Jesus has fulfilled the law. And therefore, they keep trying to establish their own sense of righteousness based on their performance of the law. And Paul says, no, it's ignorant. They haven't seen that Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. That's a different group of people. And in this letter and in many others, Paul comes out strong against them because they don't get the gospel. These people believe the gospel. They just haven't quite gotten the full scope of its application. Their issue is is that they genuinely feel that it pleases God, it honors God in some way for them to abstain from meat and to observe certain days and abstain from drinking wine. Um, When I became a Christian in college, 
Uh, I told you a few weeks ago, I'm by nature kind of a rule breaker. I'm the guy that likes to live on the edge. Uh, But the community that I became a Christian in was in a small conservative town and um, full of small conservative churches and therefore lots of very conservative Christians. And that's, so my understanding of what Christianity was, was kind of this very, so the boundaries way back, strict, conservative Christianity. And I just thought that's what it was. And so because that's what it was, I, I fit into that mold of Christian faith. So one of the big issues as on almost every college campus was drinking. And it wasn't just like, oh, that's probably not wise. Like in my circles, good Christians didn't drink alcohol. And so I began to think of that as like a very core issue. And of course, there was also the law. And we talked about that in Romans 13. I couldn't drink because I wasn't 21. But when I turned 21, you know, most people when they turn 21, they at least just go get their buddies and have a drink because they can, right? Not in my town. I didn't do that. And it was because it felt wrong to me in some way, and so I didn't do that. And a few months later, I remember one day, Debbie and I were married, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm 21, man. I need to have a drink of something, right? And so I just got in my car. The rule breaker finally just won out. And so I drove to some ghetto, out-of-the-way convenience gas station, and I bought, like, a peach wine cooler. (laughs) The judgment. My goodness, people. No. No. and I went somewhere, I can't remember exactly where, and I by myself just drank down this wine cooler just to do it, just to prove I could get out of the box. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to tell Debbie about this. Because I knew, like, she thought it was wrong too, and she would, neither would be judgment, and I wouldn't be a good Christian, and, and I think maybe I told her eventually, but probably not that day. There was something, you know, it was legal, it was fine, it was permissible by God for me to have the wine cooler, right? And when my 40-year-old self looks back on my 21-year-old self, I'm thinking, dude, so much worry over so little a thing. The only thing I'm upset with you is just is getting the wine cooler. I get a, get a good craft beer or something. That's what I'm upset about, the 40-year-old me. But the 21-year-old me just felt like this issue, not drinking, was connected somehow to what it meant to follow Jesus. And the same thing is true of these Jewish Christians. Not eating meat and observing certain days for them just feels connected somehow to following Jesus. And so it was with with the Jewish Christians in the room. Now, I want you to understand that when Paul says weak in faith, he does not mean immature. I know good, godly people who draw the boundaries way back in their life, who have rules that I don't think the Bible prescribes, and they do it for issues of just, it's for them, it's what it means to follow Jesus, and they are wise, godly people. And at the same time, I know people who understand the freedom they have in Christ, but they execute that freedom in gross, immature ways. And so this isn't about maturity. When Paul says weak in faith, it just means an understanding of the freedoms that are given. All right, let's talk about the strong in faith. Uh, in contrast, they're the ones that have a fuller understanding of what the gospel permits, what the implications of the gospel are. They eat anything. They see all days alike. They don't have a problem having a drink, a glass of wine. Uh, this is predominantly in Rome, the Gentile believers, and some Jewish Christians probably who have, who have been liberated in their understanding. Here's the important thing that I want you to see. Uh, To be strong in faith, in Paul's way of thinking, isn't just that you're more liberal in your thinking or in your practice. 
It is specifically that you have been liberated. In other words, there is some gospel reality that is driving your practice. All right, so remember, the the issue here related to like dietary laws is about what's considered clean and unclean. And the reason these were so important to Israel was because uh, God had established all these rules about clean and unclean, and He did it for a couple of reasons. One reason was uh, He wanted His people to be distinguished from the pagan nations around them. And so laws about what they ate and how they ate gave them a sense of like belonging, or it marked them in a way as God's people. Another reason was is that God wanted to get deep into their gut these categories of clean and unclean. They wanted, he wanted them to know that God, Yahweh, is holy, and that everyone else is unholy. And so there were all these things that if you had done, you became unclean, you had these processes by which you could become clean so that you could come into the presence of God. God wanted them to know you can't just strut in presumptuously or casually into God's presence because He's holy and you're not. And what the strong in faith recognize is that when we say Jesus fulfilled the law, what we mean is that Jesus makes us clean. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The strong in faith, and Paul is saying to us, we can come boldly, confidently, with full assurance in the presence of God. Not because God now accepts those who are unclean, but because God has made us clean through the blood of His Son, Jesus. So there are two groups of people, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. Both believe in Jesus. They just differ in their understanding of what that faith allows them to do. And the reason I've taken so much time just to establish those two groups of people is because a lot of the conflict and a lot of the judgmentalism that occurs in churches has to do with not understanding that these basic groups exist. In other words, categories matter. It is important for Christians to have some basic framework of how we think about life with God and how we think about one another and the understanding of the dynamics of community. And so let me give you a a basic category here. Uh, If you're taking notes, you can draw. Draw a little circle on your notes and then draw a bigger circle around it. So you've got two concentric circles. In the middle circle, these are things that are essential, core, Right, So there are core doctrines about who God is and what salvation is. And there are core commands, essential commands, things you can't debate. Like don't worship false gods. Don't cultivate lust and anger. It's clear. All right? So these are things in the middle that Christians must or must not do by the clear commands of Scripture. All right? So the rule in the center is the commands of the gospel. All right, In the circle that's outside of that, 
It's not things that Christians must or must not do. I would say it's Christians, things that Christians may or may not do. Things that are not required by Scripture but are permitted by Scripture. In this case, not eating meat, observing certain days. God's fine with either. The issue isn't the meat or the days. The issue is the faith from which they come, and uh, we'll get to that in a second. All right, so the rule in the center is the commands of the gospel. The rule on the outside circle is your conscience. There are no commands about it, so it's your conscience. And many of the issues in Christian community comes from putting things that are in the outer category into the center and things that are in the center category into the outer. That's why it's important to have the categories. Right? When, you, when you put them in the wrong places, you get two problems. Uh, let's look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats... Uh, so remember, this is the uh, strong in faith. They'll eat anything. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, the weak. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right, so come back to these circles. And the problem, again, occurs when you start putting things in circles that they don't belong in. And here's, in Rome, what's happening is people are trying to push things from the outside toward the center. And in, functionally, what they do and what we do is we create this third zone, this whole new category called should. All right, so around that center circle, you can kind of draw this squiggly buffer zone. And it's not quite must, but it's not may either. It's, you know, you should. So here's how this plays out. The two problems, as we've said, are judging and despising. The weak in faith push their convictions toward the center. They may not say that you must eat a certain way or must observe certain days, but they would definitely make you feel like you should. I mean, if you want to be serious about your faith. They become judgmental of those who neglect what seems to be so important to them. This word, past judgment, is a serious word. It means to put on trial and condemn. At the very least, the the weak in faith, when they judge, at the very least, they're looking down on other Christians as, as not being legitimate or not being serious about their faith. And at the very worst, they're condemning them. They're casting doubt on their salvation entirely. So get despising. The strong in faith do something very similar. Uh, Paul tells them, don't despise the weak in faith. They're judging you, but don't despise them. And so what happens is the strong in faith are just sick of being judged for things that they know are okay. They're tired of the narrow-minded always just raining on the party, dragging them down. And so what they begin to do is they begin to look down on the weak in faith. They begin to say things like, come on, man, just loosen up a button, have a drink. It's okay. God still loves you. You can do it, I promise. And they begin to try to to move those who have a more sensitive conscience outside of the realm of what they're comfortable with because they're tired of being judged by them. Now, when you do that, 
When you try to get someone who's weak in faith to act contrary to their conscience, what you're basically telling them is, you should do this. It's no longer in the category of may or may not, it's you should, you know. I mean, if you really want to experience God's grace and goodness in your life, you should. And so, the command not to judge and not to despise just simply means don't be critical toward a brother or sister in Christ without the accompanying brotherly affection that we've been talking about in all of Romans 12 and 13. And furthermore, don't treat them, your brother and sister, like they're not part of the family. Don't isolate or exclude or ignore them or judge or condemn them as if they're not your brother and sister. That's what Paul means when he says, don't judge and don't despise. All right, so we all do this, and and the question that we have to ask is, why? What is it in us that judges and despises that looks down on our brothers and sisters? And the answer, I think, or one answer is, our relentless drive to justify our lives and our decisions and our behaviors. All of Romans has been about justification by faith, about a righteousness that comes apart from the works of the law, about a righteousness that has been revealed and that we receive through faith in Christ. And as Christians, we love it, we get it, we're like, yes! And then when we get into the day-to-day stuff of our life, we lose sight of that reality. We forget it, and we get back into these cycles of trying to establish a righteousness of our own, trying to justify ourselves. And the way that we do it is by comparing ourselves with people around us. Back to the playground. You get out on the playground, all the kids are like making alliances, drawing lines in the sand, as it were. They're, they're gravitating toward people who are like them, who have the same, you know, interests or skills, or who think the same thing about other kids. And you just walk into any kid's playground, you'll see just the different groups of kids and how they gravitate toward one another. You know why they gravitate toward one another? That are like them? Because they're insecure. They don't have sure footing in the world. And so their strength in numbers, their strength in people who won't judge me, who think like I do, and their strength in us judging others so as to elevate ourselves. And you don't think church is just like a kid's playground? Because we're doing that kind of stuff all the time. If I can convince someone who's weak in faith that I'm right and they're wrong and that they should come over to my way of doing things, I would feel so justified so righteous in the way that I see things. If someone who's weak in faith can convince me that I need to, like, tighten the boundaries in order to please God, they will feel so justified in in their way of seeing things. And that's why Paul grounds all of this not in how we see each other, but in how God sees us. It's his playground. Paul's raising the question, how did you get into this playground to begin with? You got in by faith in Christ. And so why now being on the playground would you make up your own rules and establish your own pecking order when God has done no such thing? Verse 3. Don't despise. Don't pass judgment. For God has welcomed him. The, The governing rule of the playground is that God has accepted everyone on the playground. And so who are you to despise or judge whom God has accepted? 
Verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And so Paul employs this sort of like slave, servant, master language. And, And what he's getting at is that each of us has one master. It's Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And so when you begin to pass judgment or despise someone else, you put yourself in the place of their master. It's like when I'm with my kids and they do something and somebody will correct my kids like while I'm right there. You know what I'm feeling? I'm like, hey, I'm the dad, man. If I want to make that correction, I'll make that correction. Get off. Nothing makes me more angry than that except the lifeguards at the pool. They do the same kind of thing. And so that's what Paul's saying. He said, like, when I pass judgment on someone for some disputable matter, I'm putting myself in the place of God. I'm making them answer to me. And he's saying, no, 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 they only have to answer to one person, and it's Jesus. And you know what he says? The kid on the playground who is the weakest in faith, he will stand glorious and forgiven and righteous and accepted because Jesus is able to make him stand. My community in college, it wasn't just drinking, it was music too. So I had some pretty good CDs. And one day, this Christian worker came to my uh, dorm room and he started looking at my CDs and he was like, oh, where's all your Christian music? And I was like, Christian music is real bad. Remember, this is like early 90s. Wasn't a lot of good Christian music back then. He was like, well, no, we got to get rid of these. And just starts tossing, like, my good CDs. And you know what I did? I thought, oh, he must be right. This must be core to what it means to follow Jesus, is to not listen to secular music. And I spent the next decade trying to find those CDs in, like, half-price books and various resellers. Ask yourself this question. Just in your relationships and conflicts that you're having where there's tension, this may not be true everywhere, but... Are you placing burdens on someone by putting things that are not central into some should or must category for them? It's interesting. When you do that, when you make peripheral things the issue, condemnation and self-righteousness and judgmentalism inevitably follows. When you make Jesus the center And his acceptance, you know what follows? Genuine love and hope and the transforming power of the gospel in people's lives. There's a lot at stake in welcoming one another as God has welcomed us. Our our idea of acceptance culturally is a lot different, I think, than what Paul is saying. Uh, We typically think of acceptance as like just tolerating, putting up with, you know, keeping our mouth shut, dealing with it. There is a kind of peace that happens when you tolerate others, but Paul's advocating for something much more substantive than that. Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, listen, when we think about uh, the key to acceptance being uh, tolerating each other, Paul's saying, no, it's not that at all. It's something, it's actually just the opposite. The key in Paul's mind is 
not having less conviction, but more conviction. Each person must be fully convinced about these peripheral things in his own mind. See, it's not just being indifferent. The solution for the weak in faith isn't to to lighten up. And the solution for the strong in faith isn't just to let it go. No, he's saying to both parties, no, you need to dig deeper into your conviction. You need to be fully convinced why you hold the position that you do on these issues. Now, why would he say that? Well, here's why. Here's how this plays out. Let's say someone who's weak in faith um, wants to genuinely engage someone who's strong in faith on some issue, whether it's uh, parenting style, schooling, entertainment consumption, whatever it is. There's all kinds of sort of gray areas, right? But someone who's weak in faith, who has really strict boundaries on this, wants to engage a conversation with someone strong in faith, and they ask them, why do you do that? Now, if the person who's strong in faith doesn't really have a reason, they're just like, oh, you know, I can. You know what that does to the person who's weak in faith? It only justifies their suspicions that they're really just spiritually careless. They're not serious about their faith. They don't have real reasons. They just, it just, this is what they actually just want to do, and it happens to be okay. That's, there's nothing gospel application about that. It's just living the life you want to live. The same thing happens in the other direction. Let's say someone who's strong in faith uh, wants to engage someone who's weak in faith over the same issue. They may ask, why don't you do that? Like, what, what keeps you from being able to do that? And if the person who's weak in faith doesn't have, like, thoughtful reasons as to why, but their answer is simply just like, I don't know, it's just kind of how I grew up. It's just kind of what makes me, like, I'm nervous or fearful about doing something else. That only fuels or adds to the suspicion of the strong in faith that the weak in faith is just wound up tight. They're not really, like, applying the gospel or seeking God. They just, they just need to loosen up, you know, if they really want to enjoy God. See, if we're not looking to Jesus and allowing Him to form our convictions, we will inevitably be looking to each other and, and if we do that, you just fall into comparison and judgmentalism every single time. And so what Paul's saying when he says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind, he's saying everyone needs to look to Jesus and in their own mind be fully convinced of what it means for them to honor him and to follow him in good conscience. Now, in the center thing, it's clear. You don't have to, like, pray about whether or not you should sleep with your girlfriend. The answer is no. It's super clear. You don't have to pray about whether or not you should be in community. The answer is yes, super clear, right? But on these other things, everybody needs to be fully convinced. We need to dig deep, and that means look to Jesus. Because when we do that, and when we come to each other in conversation, and we tell each other, like, hey, for me, this is what it means to follow Jesus, I begin to respect and honor and accept you as Jesus accepts you. It's very practical, but that's how community works itself out. And so here's the rule of thumb. Uh, If you look at verse 6 through 9, read it for you. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, you have two groups of people doing opposite things, both to honor God, and they're both giving thanks. 
And so one way you know whether or not you are fully convinced in your own mind before God is to ask these two questions. Am I doing this because I want to honor God? And can I give thanks for it? If you can, go for it. For no one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, this is the point. We are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Our idea of tolerance, you know, just sort of live and let be, is not what Paul's talking about. That's individualism. That's like, don't make any judgments about anything, and, there, and also don't tell me how to live my life or affect me in any way. I want to do what I want. And what Paul's saying here is that, no, he even says, the weak in faith, they're actually wrong on the issue. He makes a judgment about right and wrong against their belief. But then he tells the strong, but don't make that the point. Don't argue over that. Accept them. Essentially, what he's telling them is, you need to change the way you want to live You need to make room in your life to have fellowship with them. It's not individualism. It's the gospel. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus makes a negative judgment about you and me. You're sinners. You're enemies of God. You're hopeless and helpless apart from God's saving grace. There's never been a more negative evaluation made of your life than by Jesus. But then he accepts. He adjusts his life. He makes room for you. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself, took on the role of a servant to die for you so that you might be welcomed into the family, into the household of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says it here. Paul talks about how in the end, we're all going to sit before the judgment seat of God. And what he's saying is Jesus has sat and has been judged on your behalf so that you could be clean, not guilty, accepted, welcomed. And when that sinks down, when we begin to view each other as God views us, we stop playing the silly playground games and we have the freedom and the power and the grace to accept one another as God has accepted us in Christ. Let me pray for us toward that end. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.